All right, well, good morning. So you guys have been in Genesis, and so to get the whole book in, we're going to be in Revelation this morning. So um, if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible on your phone, wherever, go ahead and open your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. Um, as you're turning to Revelation four, uh, 1, um, we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. And uh, what I like to do is I like to get the text in front of us, not to tell a story, not to um, talk about anything, but to just get the text in front of us. So would you please stand as I read uh, John, Revelation 1, verses 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. You can, you can be seated. That's where we'll stop today. If I was to ask you a question, who is God, I think we'd get lots of different answers. Um, we have a lot of different answers. In a recent survey of college campuses, college students, students were asked, who is God? And the following answers were given. God is like a kid with an ant farm. He's not really involved, but he is watching what we do. Some said God is a higher power that is intangible and unknowable. If God exists, he gave up on us a long time ago. I believe God will smile on the good. I think that God is an abstract idea, not a, not a person or a figure. I believe that God is the relationships that we have. I believe that God is a, a, a force that connects us all together somehow. I believe he's the answer to the questions that science hasn't yet figured out. Those were answers given on college campuses across our nation from those who did not claim to know any, have any, any belief in God. But the shocking thing is, the shocking thing is that in a recent survey conducted by Lifeway Research, more than half of those who are self-identified evangelicals get God wrong. Get God wrong. Uh, 64% thought that our God accepts the worships of all religions, even those that include the belief in many gods. 50% of self-identified evangelicals believe that Jesus was the first being that God created. Uh, it's interesting, 60% agreed that eventually everyone will go to heaven, but half of that 60% said, but only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. Try to rationalize those two together. I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, as a comment on the state of today's church, uh, former Newsday religion reporter Kenneth Briggs recently told the Religious News Service that he finds faith in the megatype churches is a Bible-less alternative version of Christianity. Scripture, he says, has become a museum exhibit, hallowed as a treasure but enigmatic and untouched. I believe we have a problem. I believe we have a problem in our church today, a problem in evangelical churches, and that is that we really don't know God. We have exchanged theological knowledge for a practical legalism. What do I mean by that? I mean we have exchanged knowing God on a deep theological level for knowing what to do and how to live. You see, our first question typically isn't, who is God, but what should I do? We're driven by the what and not by the who. And this is evident in the success of a recent best-selling book. Uh, it was uh, authored by William P. Young. It called, was called The Shack. In this shack, he presents God in a new way. The main character of the book is a guy named Mac, who's angry at God because his daughter has been kidnapped and killed, and as he, as he wrestles through his anger, he comes to a point where he actually encounters uh, God in a, in a form of a, a papa, is what she calls herself. Um, she's an African-American grandma, and that's how he presents God. He presents Jesus as a Mideastern kind of yuppie that loves to run across lakes with people, and he presents the Holy Spirit as a 
oriental geisha-like woman named Sirayu. When asked, when Young was asked, why is it that you presented God this way? His response was, well, that's who Mac needed God to be. That's who Mac needed God to be. And because he needed God to be that, that's how God presented himself to Mac. This is not only dangerous, it is heretical. Because God never becomes who we need him to be. He's not in the business of doing that. No, he's in the business of making us who we ought to be before him. And understanding him correctly drives us to want to be right with him. Not, it does not drive us to make him who we want him to be. In the play Inherit the Wind, um, one of the main characters, as they're going through the, 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 the trial, at the end of the trial, uh, his name is Darrow, he says, he says man create, God created man in his own image, and then man returned the favor. And I think that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a situation, in a, tech, in, in a church, in a, in a, not this church, not countryside, not, not solid churches, but the church as a whole in America has, is in the process of recreating God in our image so that we can better understand him. We don't need to do that. We don't need that. We need to let the scripture tell us who God is and respond correctly to that God. We need to quit asking what and start asking who. We need to quit asking, what should I do? And instead of say, who should I follow? Um, this morning, as we look at these two verses, that's what we're going to spend our time doing, is discovering who God really is. Because that's what John is doing in his first few verses of Revelation, is presenting who God is. So why Revelation? Why Revelation? Well, um, I, I taught through Revelation in Sunday school for about four years, from 2009 to 2013, and some folks asked me to put my notes into book form, and so that's kind of where I've been. And um, it, unfortunately, as I put my notes into book form, it's exploding. It's becoming a really big book. So um, it may never actually happen, but I'm working on that. But that's where I am. And what I really was confronted with as I worked back through Revelation 1 was really a picture of who God really is. That's what Revelation 1 is really all about as he presents God to the church. Now, the message of Revelation is set against the backdrop of late first century Rome. The apostles, with the exception of John, have all been martyred. Paul has been beheaded. Peter's been crucified upside down. Andrew has been crucified. Thomas pierced with spears. James clubbed to death. And even John himself has actually been dipped in boiling oil, but did not die. John is now an old man and is the last apostle of the original twelve. And the church is being increasingly persecuted by Rome. It began with Nero and has progressively gotten worse over the decades. Emperor Domitian now, who is in, in power when I believe Revelation is written, is pushing the idea of emperor worship. In fact, in the little town of Smyrna, there is, there is actually a temple to Rome where emperor worship is done by compulsion at least once a year. He insists, Domitian insists that he is venerated as God and all must bow to his image and pay homage to him and give him gifts. Well, church history tells us that John himself had refused to do that. He'd refused to bow and because of his refusal he has been exiled to a prison colony on the island of Patmos. John tells us that himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and with patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the isle called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. At the time of his arrest, church history tells us that John was ministering in the church at Ephesus and in the cities in that surrounding area. That's exactly what the books, the churches, the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are all in this place we call Asia Minor, what we call today Turkey, and they're actually on the postal route. If you look at a map, you can actually see how they make a little um, um, east-facing horseshoe of, of, of the postal route, and that's how they're addressed And you look, as, you, as you look at the seven churches. It goes to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and you just follow it all around, you can follow the little postal route. And, and, and what he's doing now is, is these, churches, these churches have begun to experience persecution. In fact, 
One pastor of these churches has already suffered martyrdom. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Not only is the persecution bad now, but it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And as persecution is going to get worse, the head of the church, Jesus, delivered, is planning to deliver these very important messages to these seven churches through the Apostle John at a time of deep, deep need. The message of the chapters 2 and 3 address the current state of the seven churches as of the delivery of the message. The letter written by John would have been sent by ship to the mainland in Asia and would have been read in its entirety in each of the seven churches. That means that each of the seven churches existed as it was in the day. And each church gets a message specifically intended for it. To make proper application to the current situation in current life, I think we need to really get into what is God saying and ask myself, is this kind of thing described me? But before we even do that, we have to know where is this message coming from and why is it important? And that's exactly the question John's going to ask. John's going to, John's going to answer this question as he, as he lays out Revelation. Revelation 1 through 3 really are all about the church. Revelation 4 through 22 really is all about the future, what's going to come as God steps in, and I believe it's Daniel's 70th week. And, and the important thing is to know is these are the very words of God. Where do we go? Where do we go to find out how, who God is and, and what God really is? Well, we, we don't have to go to books. We don't have to go to our own human ideas of who God is. God does a really good job of laying out in the Word of God exactly who He is and how He is to be worshipped, how He's worshipped. And so we, we must know God because of who He is. It demands that we know God. And so as John begins to deliver this message, he first informs the readers of the divine source of this message. Why is the Word of God important? Why does it matter? Why should we take time to, to make ourselves theologically smart and stop reading junk and start reading the Word? Why is it we ought to be doing that? We ought to be doing it because of who God is. And His knowing Him demands that we do this work, that we do this work. The message that follows in Revelation is not just merely opinions of man or just conjecture of John hoping something. No, these are the very words of God. And the source indicates that the entire Trinity is involved in the, in the communication of this message. And we see that in these first few verses of Revelation, the Trinity is presented in its, in its full his first mention, I believe, is the Father. He says, after he says, John, the seven churches are in Asia, grace, grace to you and peace. Where does it come from? It comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, those terms are going to define Jesus later on in the book of uh, the first chapter of Revelation and in Revelation 2. But that is not how he is defining Jesus here. I believe he is here defining the eternal Father. Why did I say that? Well, because later on he's actually going to refer to Jesus as an and from. And from. Look at, look at what he says. He says, uh, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits are before us, and from Jesus Christ. So if there's an and from, then this is not referring to Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about Jesus Christ, but not yet. There's an and from. So if because so who is the original the original focus of this, this phrase, the eternal God, in the words of him who is and who was and is to come, I think it's a clear reference to God the Father, to God the Father. And he, he defines him and describes him as eternal from who is and who was and is to come. Now, how could, how could knowing that, how could knowing that God who was and who is and who is to come, remember, what are these churches getting ready to face? They're getting ready to face difficulty, extreme persecution. How can, knowing that God is eternal, how can that help us walk through difficult persecution? How can that help us walk through terrible times? 
I mean, if you just read what's going on in Smyrna, which, which we won't do today, but at some point I would love you to have you do that. Not just read it out of Revelation, but read the history of the city of Smyrna and look at the incredible persecution that is happening in that city where Christians are being tortured and then thrown into the arena where lions and, and wild beasts would rip their flesh limb from limb. Um, persecution's ramping up. So how can, knowing that God is eternal, how does that help me walk through difficulty? How does it help me walk through persecution? Well, I believe that as we understand what it means that he is eternal, I think that that helps us recognize that he is here. He is with us. He is right beside me in that persecution. You see, he doesn't say, in his saying, God who is, that means right now he is. He is eternal. Um, He defines himself, and it's interesting how God introduces himself to his people in Exodus chapter 6. When Moses, when Moses is called to go into take take go back to Egypt and to, to deliver the people from Egypt, Moses asks, Well, who will I say sent me? And God says, I am. I am. In Exodus 6, he says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. He says, I am. There's extreme significance in the understanding of I am. And when he describes himself, before Abraham was, Jesus is going to do this later on, before Abraham was, I am. You see, here's the deal. At creation, he is. At the end of the world, he is. Right now, he is. As we understand God as being eternal, that means this, that he is not only, we, we talk about, you know, if I was to ask you, give me, give me three attributes of God, I'll bet you the three that would come up with, well, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, right? And then we would say, he's omnipresent, and he's all-knowing, omniscient. Those would be the three. But I don't think we really understand omnipresent the way God is omnipresent. Because as we understand omnipresence, we need to understand this, that God is everywhere present, but he's also every time present. There's never been a time where he hasn't been is. There's never been a time that he says, he's not looking forward tomorrow, he is tomorrow. He's not looking back at the the past, he is the past. God is not just everywhere. I kind of maybe coined a phrase at at teen camp. God is also every when. He is every when. There is no point in any time where God hasn't been. So not only does he not know that you're walking through the difficulty you're walking through, he's already at the end and sees the result. And so when he promises this difficulty will not harm you, it's not a, boy, I sure hope it works out the way I hope it works out. No, he's already at there. He's already there. He already sees the end. He's there. You see, he is not related to time in any way. He's outside of time. So that makes him everywhere. What are you facing? I don't know what you're facing, but remember, God is eternal. And because he's eternal, he is here and he is there. He is already 2,000 years from now. When he thinks 2,000 years now, he thinks it's today. When he thought 2,000 years ago, he thinks it's today because he's everywhere present. He's everywhere present. And there's great hope there for those who struggle, for those who struggle. And I think the correlation is very important here because the Lord reveals himself by the name I am to, through Moses to the people. And what he says is, I understand the heavy persecution you've been under. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you realize that the Jewish people have been living in Egypt now for 430 years, and the persecution that Pharaoh is bringing against them has really ramped up. He wants to control them. He wants to make them so they can't take him out. And so they have been crying out to him for deliverance. And he says to Moses, I've heard their cry, and I am delivering them. I am responding to them. And how could they have hope that 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 deliverance would work? They can't have hope because... He is. He is. How could this give hope by that name then to the churches 
in Asia Minor. They give hope because God is. That even though, even though that pressure was ratcheting up, even though persecution was going to get strong, there's this message. There's this message in Revelation, the whole book of Revelation, that God says, I have this. I have this. And I am. I am. You see, you can trust this message. You can trust the message of hope that God is giving to these seven churches. You can trust it because he's already there. He's already there. You know what? The best source for information is someone who's there. So we, we do that, right? Our news people do that. Um, you know, with the, with the, with the um, what's her name? Maria, that hit Pan, um, Puerto Rico. You know, you had, you had all, all these newscasters, and yet Lester Holt was probably the most authoritative speaker on the, the, the hurricane in Puerto Rico. Why? Because he was on the ground in Puerto Rico. He's on the ground in Puerto Rico. Why would we trust him more than the other guys? Because he's there. Why would you trust God more than somebody else? Because he's there. And when he says, this will pressure you, but this won't kill you, guess what you can understand? It won't kill you. How can he know that? God, how can you know that? Well, because I'm there. At creation, I am. In your present situation, I am. At the end, I am. That's the God we serve. That's God, the eternal Father. There's great hope found in God being the eternal Father. That's who we ought to worship. We don't need to try to build him into an image that we've created. We need to let him be who he is and find hope and comfort and encouragement in the fact that he is. That he is. If he was faithful to to the Israelites in Egypt, and he was, then he will be faithful to those churches in Asia Minor. And he was faithful to those churches in Asia Minor, and he was then he'll be faithful to us today. That's the God we serve. That is the eternal Father. And there's great hope found in the fact that he is the eternal Father. So he says, grace to you and peace from who was and who is and who is to come. So, so, so as, we, as you're walking, I don't, I don't know what it is you're walking through. I don't know what difficulty you're facing. I don't know what challenges you have. But here's the good news for those who believe God's there. God's there. There is a, there's a lawyer on TV right now that advertises, uh, you call Mike, I got this. Well, no, Mike doesn't got this, but God does. God's got this. God's got this. See that the problem is because we have, we have made God in our image, we don't trust him. We don't trust him. So right now, what I would like for all of us to do is throw that image of God we have out of our heads And let's trust God because he's faithful. He's not faithful just because he says he is. He's faithful because of who he is. The eternal God. The I am. The one who is and who was and who is to come. So we can find hope, encouragement in the fact that God is the eternal father. But he moves on from eternal father and he moves now to the Holy Spirit. He says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne... And there's a couple of interesting things here. I think most of the time when we talk about the Godhead, we say the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I love the fact that in this case, John says, Father, Spirit, Son. He, he gets it, what we would call out of order. But I think it's really important that he did it this way. Because in including a member of the Godhead before the Spirit, and including a member of the Godhead after the Spirit, he makes the Spirit deity. He makes the Spirit God. You know, I think, I find it interesting that, that the one person of the Godhead that we call it is the Holy Spirit. I, I, I was thinking about it. I have never said uh, about God the Father, it. If someone was asked, hey, where's God the Father? Well, it is in heaven. It is every place. No, I wouldn't say that. He is in heaven. He is everywhere. He is every when. Now, I would say that He. When somebody asks me about Jesus' son, I don't ever say, well, it died on the cross for my sin. We don't do that. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, it lives in me. Really? 
It lives in me. Well, maybe it's because you know, like when, when we have, when somebody's expecting, we say, is, is it a boy or a girl, right? Is it. It's not an it. It's not an it. I, I, think, I think that kind of concept leads to how we devalue life. It does lead to how we, if it's an it, then it's not a he. Um, that's the side, I need to get back on track because um, I wasn't even supposed to talk about that. I wasn't even supposed to talk about that. But, but there is something about the calling it an it. But the spirit is a he. He's a person. And I love that God puts him between God the Father, John puts him between God the Father and God the Son. Here is the spirit because he's, it shows his equality in the Godhead. It shows equality in the Godhead. And, and so, so as we look, first of all, he says... What does John mean when he says the seven spirits who are before his throne? I don't think this is talking about seven angels. Seven angels who are somehow before the throne performing some kind of service. But rather, I believe this is talking about the Holy Spirit as evident um, um, that, that this is something godly because of the, again, the, the member of the Trinity before and the member of the Trinity after. And, and because of the linkage, the and froms. Those are important. So who is this message coming from? It's coming from the eternal Father and from the Holy Spirit and from the Son. So it's coming from three equal people. So an angel is never equal with God. Seven angels would never be equal with God. So this, I think, is a clear reference back to our look at the Spirit of God. Um, The the book of, of Isaiah refers to the sevenfold Spirit of God. Isaiah chapter 11 talks about the seven... Let me just read it here. So, um, Isaiah, here it is. I found my notes. It's the tribes of the Lord. It's the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Those are seven terms that describe the Spirit. I, I think it also describes the work that He does. I mean, think about this. Think about where this message is coming. It's coming from the spirit of truth. If, if the spirit is defined as the spirit of truth, can we trust the message? Yeah, he's not the spirit of error. He's not the spirit of half-truth. No, he's the spirit of truth. So everything that emanates from him must be truth. It is, he's referred to as the spirit of, and I lost my place, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might. That's where this message is coming from. It's, and, it's the eternal Father and from the Spirit of God who is this powerful. Who is this powerful? I think in an effort in our society and in our churches today, in an effort to move away from an inaccurate understanding of the Spirit, we have actually forgotten the Spirit. We've forgotten the Spirit. And he becomes like an afterthought. But I think that's a, that's a wrong understanding of who he is. I think it's a wrong understanding of what he's about doing. Um, it's interesting. If you, if you do a study of the disciples before Acts chapter 2, you look at what kind of men they were. They were cowardly. They were fearful. They were backstabbers. They were self-promoters. I mean, you just, just walk with them through some of the things they were doing. And then Acts 2 comes. Then Acts 2 comes, and rather than being cowards, they were courageous. Rather than being, having their mouths shut and not saying anything, they were boldly proclaiming Jesus. Rather than being considered ignorant and unlearned, they were now those who knew the word of God and could accurately portray who Jesus is. I think it's amazing that the first message Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 is a history lesson of Israel. And how it, how it just flows out. I, I find it interesting that Peter didn't spend three weeks preparing that message. Now, he's in an upper room waiting for the Spirit to come. The Spirit comes. People say, hey, you look like you're drunk. And he says, no, we're not drunk. Let me tell you what's happening here. And he preaches an amazing message without any prep work. How did that happen? What happened between Acts chapter 1 and before, and Acts chapter 2 and following. How is it that a man who denied Jesus three times is willing to be crucified upside down? How is it that that happens? How is it the disciples that scattered, as soon as soldiers came to take Jesus, the disciples scattered? How is it those disciples who scattered were martyred for the, case of, for the cause of Christ? How does that happen? Because they started trying really hard, right? Because they said in that upper room, we're going to, hey guys, let's get together, let's try really hard, let's be different. Is that what happened? No. The only thing that happened between Acts chapter 1 
And Acts chapter 2 is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he changed them. He changed them completely. He took cowards and made them courageous. He took, he took those who were ignorant and made them intelligent. He took those who were, who were scared to death and made them bold as they proclaimed. To the point that Jesus, no, Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin and they say to the Sanhedrin, who they were scared to death of just weeks before, they say, whether it is right to obey you or to obey God, you decide. We're going to obey God. We're going to obey God. How does that change happen? How did that change happen? It wasn't because they tried hard. It was because the Spirit was indwelling them. It was because the Spirit was filling them. And it was because the Spirit was enabling them. You know what I find? Most cases, when there's something spiritual I want to change in my life, I think i got to change it. I think I have to fix it. And my prayer is, God, help me do this. That's not should be our prayer. Our prayer should be, God, make me do this. Make me your kind of person. On the way here, we were reading, we always read a psalm on the way to church, and so we had a long drive. So Kathy read Psalm 1. I don't read. <laughs> Kathy read Psalm 119. And if you, it's interesting, if you look at David's words in Psalm 119, it is, make me. Do this to me. Place in me. Not help me figure out how to. You know, I think what we, have, what, we have, what we have degraded to is a therapeutic kind of Christianity rather than a change kind of Christianity. And I think a lot of it is because we don't understand the Holy Spirit. We understand who He is. We don't really understand His ministry. And our prayer ought to be, make me your kind of person. Make my heart be the heart that does that. Do inward change in me that outwardly affects. Um, as you look at Galatians chapter 4, uh, Galatians chapter 5, you have the works of the flesh, the works of the flesh as contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. Not the works of the Spirit. Not the works of the Spirit. What is a fruit? A fruit is something that a tree produces, right? I've used this example before at Countryside. But how many times have you walked through an apple orchard and heard the trees groaning to make fruit? You don't walk through an apple orchard and hear the trees going, Oh, come on! Give me an apple! Come on! Apple! No, you don't do that, right? How come an apple tree makes apples? Because it's an apple tree. How do people exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Because they're spiritual. Because He's inside of us working out. You know, my time ought to be more spent, more spent asking God to fill me with His Spirit than asking me to respond right. Because I guarantee you this, if you're filled with His Spirit, you will respond right. Rather than, being, rather than trying to be the right kind of husband... I ought to be asking, God, fill me with your spirit. Because I, as I'm filled with his spirit, I will be the right kind of husband. As I'm filled with his spirit, I will be the right kind of wife. As I'm filled with his spirit, I will be the right kind of employer. I will be the right kind of employee. I will be the right kind of child. I will be the right kind of parent. How many books are there right now saying, how do you get parenting 101 classes? You know, whatever it is. How many books are there out there? You go to a bookstore, you'll find thousands of them. How many books are there that say, be filled? That's what Paul would say, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 and following, that's the, the, the most popular used verses at weddings. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, all that stuff. What's, what, what actually precipitates conversation is 518. Don't be drunk with wine, words in debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. See, if, if we understand the Spirit correctly and we give Him His proper place, we can try a lot less hard. We can let God be the one that works in us and God be the one that works through us through His Spirit. Through His Spirit. And as, as, we, as we understand the Spirit and we understand that this is where the message is coming from. This is, this is who God is. And understanding that, understanding that He is in us and He is filling us and he is enabling us, and he's equipping us, gives us then the power to live and walk and face whatever it is we're facing. Face whatever it is we're facing. So great news. This message, 
This message comes from God the Father, the eternal Father, who is and who was and who is to come. It comes from the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom, of love, of, 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 of those, those seven things listed before. It comes from that spirit. But John isn't done yet because he says there's one more part. There's one more part to the divine source of this message, and that is Jesus, the Son. He says, and from Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of, earth, ruler of, the king, of kings on earth. John now moves to the Son as the source of this message, and, and we could actually spend hours. What time is it? Oh, boy. <laughs> wow. Um, on this subject, but we will just actually look at the three terms John uses to describe the Son. First of all, it's the faithful witness. The term witness is a very specific term in the New Testament. It's the Greek word martyrion, or, or it's the Greek word where we get the word martyr from. And, and so each time, each time the word witness is used in, in the book of Revelation, if you, do the, if you do the work, you'll find it is, is referring to someone who not only stood for Christ and spoke for Christ, but died for doing it, died for doing it. And so, so Jesus says to the, of the, in the two witnesses and those who were beheaded for the testimony for Lamb in chapter 20, uh, in Acts, we already referred to Antipas, my faithful witness, who was martyred for his faith. He refers to the disciples back in Acts chapter 20, and he says, and you will be my witnesses. Interesting, again, every one of those disciples, with the exception of John, was martyred for the faith, and they tried to kill John, but God miraculously saved him to accomplish the purpose of writing Revelation, I believe. But we have a we have a pattern and example to follow. It's not those who are just faithful. It was Jesus who is the faithful witness. How is he considered faithful? Well, he's considered faithful because he accomplished the purpose he was sent to do. He willingly left heaven, willingly came to earth, willingly gave his life as a ransom for many, and willingly said on a cross, It is finished. How could he say, It is finished? Because he was faithful to complete the task before him. And as he hung there and said, it is finished, it wasn't, oh, I sure hope it's finished. No, because he was faithful to God the Father, he was faithful to accomplish everything. And when he said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. As he prayed in the garden in John 17, he said I have, he had glorified the Father in accomplishing every task that he had sent him to do. He, he did not merely, his, his sacrifice was not just merely a covering for sin. It was a propitiation for sin. It wasn't just covering sin that God couldn't see. No, it was, it was the completely satisfying sacrifice. He faithfully accomplished that work and went into the holy place for us and sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat, faithfully accomplishing what God sent him to do. He was the faithful witness. He suffered for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. He suffered once the just for the unjust. We have redemption through his blood. He was delivered for our offenses, and by his stripes, we're healed. He accomplished what he came to accomplish. I would say praise God for our faithful witness. Praise God for our faithful witness. And why do we need to redefine him? Why do we make him a yuppie carpenter when he is the almighty son of God, the faithful witness? And he gave, so, he, so, so I think there's, in that idea, the faithful witness, there's the idea of his death. There's the idea of his death and what he accomplished in his death. But here's the good news. He's also the firstborn of the dead. He didn't stay dead. No, he rose from the grave. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He didn't stay dead. He arose, and he is alive. And as he's alive, he's doing something right now. He is making intercession for us. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty of high. He was raised for our justification. And get this, what that means, because of his glorious gift, I am now seen by God, not just as if I'd never sinned, but I am now seen by God just as if I have always been righteous. God sees me through the righteousness of Christ. He made him who knew, knew no sin to be sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God. Is there guilt? 
Do I need to walk through life facing guilt? Absolutely not, because I am seen as Christ is seen as always being righteous. Not just innocent. Not just innocent. You know, when, when someone goes to court and they're, 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 there's not enough proof to make it absolutely beyond a shadow of doubt guilt, then they say, not guilty. It's not just not guilty. It's always righteous. Always righteous. When God looks, I don't have to walk through life with guilt because God says, I see you and I see my son. His grace, his righteousness has been imputed to those of us who believe. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does that mean, firstborn from the dead? I think it means this. His resurrection was different from all the other resurrections before. There had been other resurrections. There had been other people who came back from the dead, Lazarus being one of them in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you got the, the widow's son from Elijah and the, the Shunammite woman's son with Elisha. So you have other people who have come up, been raised from the dead, right? So, so he's really the first then, is he? But he is in the sense that he's the one who raised himself. He's the one who raised himself. You see, the, the widow's son in Isaiah needed someone to raise him. The wid- uh, and Elijah needed someone to raise him. The widow's son with Elisha needed someone to raise him. The Lazarus needed someone to raise him. Jesus needed no one to raise him. Now, if you, if you look at the math, you do the, it, is, it is a work of the father and the son. But Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, the Father can take it up for me. No, he didn't say that. If I lay it down, I can take it up again. And yet, and yet, there's also the idea that the Father raised him. Both active, both God, equally, equally God. So this was the first one done where he, he laid it down and he took it. He was a, no other resurrection had ever been accomplished by the one who was dead. None ever. Jesus was raised by his power, which serves as the foundation for all other resurrections. And it was only after the resurrection that the disciples finally got it. Jesus, John reports in his own gospel, the, the guy who wrote Revelation in his own gospel said, it wasn't until he looked into the empty tomb and saw the grave clothes laid out the way they were that he said at that point, I believed. Then I believed. Up to the crucifixion, the disciples are continuing to argue with Jesus about his redemptive plan. They're continuing to argue with him about his redemptive plan. Three times Jesus has said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to deliver over the chief priest. I'm going to be killed. On the third day, I'm going to rise. And Peter says to him, no, you're not. No, you're not. Not if I have anything to say about it. And, and how does Jesus respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You see, anytime we thwart or we, we put ourselves in, in the way of God's plan, we don't become ministers of God. We become ministers of Satan. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. But after the resurrection, after the resurrection, Peter the denier became Peter the preacher. There's, there's significance. There's significance in the resurrection. The disciples who deserted became apostles who proclaimed, our Savior, the founder of our faith, is alive. Okay, some of you are sleeping. I know I'm going long, but here's the deal. Our Savior, the founder of our faith, is alive. That should give us great hope in whatever it is we face. He is alive. And because he lives, we too shall live. What do we have to be afraid of? Let's not fear the one who can kill the body. Let's rather fear the one who holds our souls in his hand. Because he lives, we too shall live. Jesus is the faithful witness. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and Jesus is the ruler of all the kings on earth. John describes him that way. He is the king of kings. Notice progression. Faithful witness who gave himself and has risen from the dead is now seated at the right hand of majesty on high, and he is now given a name above every name, and through him the kings of the world have become kings Kingdoms of God and His Son, the, you know, the, the, the whole idea of the hallelujah course. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His, of his Christ. You know, no king has any authority apart from what he's been given by God. I'll say that again. No king has any authority apart from what he's been given by God. Sometimes it's hard to get a solid grasp on that, especially with presidents and kings 
who we live with now. Especially it's hard when, our, when the king or the ruler seems to be less than an honorable person. It's hard to get our heads grasped around what Paul says in Revelation, no, not in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and, none of those, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Well, Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have our president, man. You don't have the tweet master, right? You don't have him doing that stuff. You don't have our president. No, Paul had Nero, the fiddle master. That's what Paul had. You think, you think our last two, our current president and maybe last one were, 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 were wicked, evil people? Let me introduce you to Nero. I won't do it right now. I, have, I was supposed to. We're not going to because um, it's already really late. So um, uh, the fact is that, that they need to understand, these churches need to understand that Emperor Domitian is there because God has him there. Um, who is Paul? Who is John writing to? He's writing to a group of people who are suffering under the hands of a of a despot, of a king who demands that you worship me. Um, and and the the hope given here is that I put him there. I put him there. There's a purpose for him even, him even being where he is because because. That he, Jesus, is the ruler of kings on earth. Nothing is happening. Nothing is happening that he doesn't know. No power on earth can ever thwart his plan. No, no king can ever overcome his, his rule. Cyrus, all the Old Testament Persian and Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar, not a nice man. None of those could overthrow what Jesus, what God was planning to do. None of those today, no king today can overthrow his plan. How does that give us hope? Because the king who seems powerful is really just operating in the hand and in the plan of God. He's operating there. So as we consider the source, eternal God, Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son. And, and I know that, that you've listened well, but there's something else I really, I really want to say. You know, here's the fact that for those of us who believe, there's great hope there. There's great hope for there. But if you're here and you're not a believer, there's no hope for you at all. There's no hope for you at all. These message, this message is sp- spoken specifically to churches. The church consists of those who are believers in Jesus Christ and not anybody else. You see, the claims of the gospel are exclusive, not inclusive. And, and, and while it's hard and it sounds harsh, and I think that's probably why, why, why when, when pressed, those who self-identify as evangelicals said, yeah, probably everybody's going to get to heaven because it's hard to think that somebody's not going to make it. But the fact is, someone's not going to make it. That's the claim of the gospel. The claim of Christ is exclusive. Only those who believe, only those who believe will enter into his kingdom. And so before I finish, I want to just bring four, four points to bear for you to hear. You've listened really well. I, wanna, I won't belabor these. First, you need to understand who God really is. God is the righteous creator. God is, is the creator of all things And because he's the creator of all things, he rules all things. Because he rules all things, he has the right to demand obedience. His right to demand obedience. And he did. He did demand obedience. The fact is, every man, woman, boy, and girl here today is a creation of God. And we are then obligated to obey him. And in in the garden, when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he made one simple rule. Eat from every tree of the garden except one. And we know, Genesis 3, that man violated that rule. Man violated that rule. So while God is a righteous creator, we know this, that man, apart from God, is a helpless and hopeless sinner. Scripture tells us that, that, that in Romans chapter 5, that because one man sinned, that sin passed to all men. And because that sin passed to all, death has passed to all. And the Bible makes it real clear there's no way we can clean ourselves up. There's no way we can make ourselves righteous. We are helpless and we are hopeless. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people can't fix themselves. We need help. Just like dead people in the Old Testament couldn't raise themselves, dead spiritual people can't 
can't fix themselves but God. Here's the good news. God sent his son Jesus. Jesus took upon himself flesh, came to earth as a baby, lived a sinless, perfect life, died in our place, taking my sin upon him, and rose the third day to prove, provide salvation for eternity for all who believe. That's the gospel. But that gospel isn't universal. The gospel demands a response. The gospel demands a response. Demands a response of faith. Faith demonstrated by belief and repentance. Belief is this. Belief is saying that I don't understand everything that the Bible says, but when the Bible says it, I believe it. I don't understand how God can be everywhere and everywhere. I don't understand how, how, God, can, how God can be all-powerful. I don't get that in my head. There's some things that I've been, a, I've been a believer for a lot of years, and there are some things I still wrestle with regarding God, but I believe what he says in his word. I believe it even though I don't understand it all, and I don't have to, I don't have to scientifically prove it all. Um, now, I'm not asking that we take an irrational look at stuff, because I think if you walk through, you can see how, how rational faith really is. But the fact is, when I say I believe, it doesn't mean I understand everything, but I believe what God said about himself, about me, and about Jesus. I believe that. That's responding in belief. But then there's also a repentance and what repentance is, is saying, okay, so now my head, my mind is changed. I believe what God says about himself. I believe what God says about me. I believe what God says about Jesus. And my mind changes. It's a change of mind. And then my heart changes. Well, then if that's who he is, if that's how much he loves me, I need to stop loving myself and start loving, my, loving him. I need to stop walking my way and start walking his way. There's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart. And that results in a change of direction. I stop living my way, walking my way, living my life, and I start walking after him and following him. That's repentance. And if you've never, if you've never come to a place where you've had that change of mind leading to a change of heart, resulting in a change of direction, I would beg you, beyond all else, know who God is and respond to him this morning in faith. Not next week. Not three days from now. You know, that's nowhere in the Bible where it says, hey, two weeks from now is the day of salvation. No, he says today is the day of salvation. He told the Jews in, in Deuteronomy, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Please, you've seen, you've seen communion lived out here today, walked out here today. You've heard who God is. My prayer is if you're not a believer, you will respond to him today in faith, which is belief and repentance. There is trustworthiness in the source of the message because it comes from God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit and the Son. I did it, see? So what is it you're facing? What, what, what struggle are you facing today as a believer? You know what you can be confident in? He's got this. He's got this. He, he gave encouragement and confidence to the seven churches because even though they were going to go through great difficulty, great difficulty, tribulation, but he tells them, I got this. I got this. Will you be willing to trust God today and say, let him, let him have this, to respond to him as the eternal father, the, the, the comforting spirit, and the, um, the, the, the life-giving son? That would be my prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For our time in your word this morning, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for being the amazing God that you are. Help us to trust you as you desire to be trusted. We ask this in your name. Amen.